0: Ephesians chapter 4, um, tonight I want to title this, He Descended, and this is part of something that Paul will say in our text tonight. Of course, He is Jesus, and we have an ascending Jesus, and we have a descending Jesus. We talk about the ascendant Jesus, not as much as I think we should. In fact, I'm, we were just now talking about the Christian holidays and the holy days Uh, and and me sharing devotions with you, uh, you're going to get some stuff on ascension because I think, um, for me, you're going to get some stuff on ascension because I think it's one of the underappreciated aspects of the ministry of Jesus is His ascension because His ascension is His enthronement. And we all call Him King of Kings and Lord of Lords, but we don't really honor the moment in which He ascends to the throne. So we'll do that. Um, We do give it some attention, though. We know Jesus ascended into heaven. And we know that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. I do think sometimes we treat the ascension as if it was just like the thing that had to happen to get him to where he was going. Um, The early church, particularly Paul, doesn't just pass up the ascension. He has not ascended Jesus, but he wants to drop a little piece of theology on us. I'm going to admit before we read this tonight, tonight is a very disputed passage, not disputed in the authorship. We're not sitting around fighting over whether it's original. What we do argue over in, scholar, in the scholarly world is what to do with it. In fact, I'm going to throw a barrage of scriptures at you tonight that have been fought over and argued over for a long time. What do we do with these verses? What's the proper way? Where do we properly land our foot on what to do with these interpretively? As you might expect, I'm not going to try to convince you. Um, I think Bible study is not just about walking out and going, you know, tonight I figured out the answer. I think sometimes the study is worth walking out and saying, tonight I learned three things about that I didn't know before. And I, I don't know that I'm any smarter knowing three more things than I knew before. In fact, I'm a little more confused on to which one I want to land on, but that's okay because when I went into the Bible study, I thought I had it figured out. I thought I knew that verse. I know what it means. I don't need it, I don't. Have, there's nothing to teach me. Now I got like two or three things to think about. And I'm not sure I agree with any of them, but the fact that they're out there, that somebody believes in them, and that somebody presented them, well, now I've got something to think about. So what we want to talk about tonight is it's very fitting that it's on the heels of Holy Week. Uh, It's right behind Easter. We're two days from that, for those watching in the future. Two days past Easter, which means we're three days past Holy Saturday, which is the day between the death and the, the resurrection of Jesus. And that day in Christian circles is just widely... Missed and looked over, and just sort of thought of as the day we get, you know, go to the mall and buy something to wear for Easter. Um, like, you know, that, that's what you do on that day because, you know, Jesus died on Friday and we're going to have church on Sunday. Um, the church across time has not done this. I want to present to you tonight a doctrine that I'm not going to try to convince you is true, but I think that by the time this lesson is over, you'll have something to think about that maybe you'll never forget. It will cause you to at least think of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ differently. And we can blame Paul, and we can blame Peter, and we can blame a few other passages in the New Testament that give us something to think about. Let's start by reading the text, which is the follow-up from right where we were last week. I'm going to start. We're going to read 7, 8, 9, and 10, but I want to start with 7 and 8 because you can see quote marks, which means Paul's going to do what Paul loves to do, and that's pull... From the Old Testament, particularly Paul loves to pull from the Psalms, and he will do so here. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, and here's the quote, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive, and he gave gifts to men. Before we dig into the quote, I'll, I'll take you to the quote. Before we dig into the semantics of it, because there are literally some narrative change, Would you notice this great phrase, verse 7, every one of us has, has grace given to us according to Christ's gift. I cannot say enough about the grace of God. I I cannot emphasize enough the grace of God. Um, If I tried, I'd fall short. And I think when we think we're overdoing it with God's grace um, is probably when we're just getting started. Um, We live in a church culture that will take all the angry judgmental God you can give them and they'll amen it, and they'll write songs about it, and they'll shout to it, and they'll build churches around it. But the minute you make God gracious, long-suffering, and kind, you can only go so far with that. And so you can push any amount of God is mad, God is judgmental, and God is angry. You can push, and I mean literally you can push any amount of that theology that you want, that God is angry, and you will have somebody amen it. But if you go too far, and I mean you don't have to go far at all, with a gracious God, you get pushback. I think it's because we only have so much room in our hearts for grace. And perhaps it's because we have a retributive nature. We think people should get what they deserve. And grace offends that sensibility. And grace says people shouldn't get more than they've earned, but they should get everything coming to them. And our society agrees with that. The church, by and large, agrees with that. Some of the most offensive things Jesus teaches are His parables. It's why people don't preach Jesus' parables. Think about it. You know, you know how long you got to go to church to hear someone preach a parable of Jesus? It's, a, it's incredible considering the Gospels are full of them. But like when you get a parable about Jesus going, a guy hired a bunch of people and put them in the field and agreed to pay them, and then two hours later he hired some more, and through two hours later he hired some more, and then right before the work whistle ended he hired some more and he paid them all the same. And can't I do what I want with my own money? It's a great way to end the sermon. It's to go, can't God do what he wants with his own forgiveness? Can't God do what he wants with his own grace? Can't God do what he wants with his own death? With his own son? With his own love? Oh, careful with it. Always careful with it. Careful with that, which I think is what people said to Jesus. Every time he shared one, they go, what do you mean by this? Surely you don't mean. And so I can't emphasize enough grace. If I try, I'll fail. We just can't say enough about the grace of God and and the beauty of this grace is that it's grace given to us in the same measure that it's given to Christ. So if you think God gave Jesus too much grace to, to dispense out, well then you got a good argument. Take it up with God and say, you know, I think this grace thing's out of hand and if you gave us as much grace as you gave Jesus, I'm going to argue with you. I think you gave us too much grace. Take that up with God. Good luck. Um, But if you can find it in Jesus, this is the beauty, of to me, of that sentence. To each of us, grace was given according to Christ's measure. Whatever Christ received, we received. So the extent to which the love of God moved through Jesus, that's the dispensation of grace you get to receive. So if you agree with Jesus, then you're in lockstep in agreement. With the grace of God. This once again is why it's not enough to merely preach the epistles. It's not enough to merely preach Paul. Because he keeps pointing you back to Christ as the plumb line for all of the goodness of God. It's not just how much theology you know is how good God is, it's how much Jesus do you know is how good God is. And in a lot of places where you're hearing about the judgmental, angry, mad God, we're always trying to balance it out. Don't preach too much grace. Give this. We have to do that because we're not preaching enough Jesus. And if you've not put enough Jesus out there, then you're going to be forced to to try and prop up other examples of what you think God looks like without Jesus. Okay, that could be its own lesson, that seventh verse. Because I can talk about grace all night long, I can talk about the gift of grace in Jesus all night long, but... It's really not what I want to do tonight. Well, I want to do it, but it's really not what we came to do tonight. We're to talk about He descended. And, and we've got to take Jesus before He can ascend. We've got to take a look at the Jesus that descends. To get there, I want to show you how Paul likes to transform Scripture. And this is, we're going to open a little can of Scripture worms right here. And that is, what right do you have to tinker with the Bible? Oh, well, good question. Um, maybe you have no right to tinker with the Bible. In fact, I was raised in cultures that would hold their Bible up in the pulpit and go, I believe every word of this from the table of contents to the maps. Anybody else hear that? Table of contents to the maps, cover to cover. I'm a believer and, uh, great. Okay. Um, what does that mean though? You know, first of all, table of contents to the maps. (laughs) Come on. I mean, I, I know it sounds good, but I don't think you thought that through. Um, anyway, that's between you and that's between you and God, a merciful God. Um, what do you get to do with scripture? We we don't do anything with it. We just read it and accept it. Well, you run into a problem because Jesus does something with scripture and Jesus isn't alone. We're okay with Jesus doing it because he wrote the book. I mean, he sees something in the text. He filters it through the love of his father. He changes the words. You have heard it was said, but I say to you. And we go, uh, ooh, that's tough to swallow, but it's Jesus, I can take it. Well, What about when it's not Jesus? What about when it's Paul reading something and going, you know, I think Jesus elevated this. I mean, I think Jesus changed this. Okay, so try this one on. Psalm 68, 18. You have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. You have received gifts among men, even from the rebellious, that the Lord God might dwell there. Paul, in what has to be the only possible place for Paul's quote. Because granted, Paul doesn't say, as it is written in Psalm 68, because he wouldn't have called it that. But he does quote, and I checked the Septuagint to make sure that it wasn't Paul reading the Greek and not the Hebrew. It wasn't. When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive, and he gave gifts to men. But that's not what the Bible says. I read to you what the Bible says. Psalm 68, 18 says, You ascended on high, you led captivity captive, and you received gifts from men. And Paul, seeing that Jesus is the ascendant one, has a twinge in his spirit when he reads Psalm 68. And he goes, He didn't ascend and take anything from us. He ascended and gave stuff to us. Now, my question is: What gives Paul the right to do that? He's not Jesus, he's not God. You go, well, he's led by the Holy Spirit. Well, you know, good luck with that. When you get to the end of Corinthians, and he says anathema to those of you that don't believe what I said, or double curse on you if you don't preach what I preach in Galatians one. You think the Holy Spirit told him that? If so, double curse to anybody disagrees with Paul. Well, we're probably in trouble. Or. Paul is authentic to Jesus. He looks at the ascension of Christ and he says, when Jesus ascends into heaven, he's not taking anything from Brian. He's not taking anything from Nola. But what he's doing when he ascends is he's giving to Brian the measure of the gift he gave to Christ. He's handing it to him. He's leaving the earth, but leaving a piece of himself in his church. Across time, to anyone who ever claims that Jesus, they get a piece of that. It's not God pulling things out of us, it's God pushing into us the life of God. So he who ascended, led captivity captive, same line, and then the change. He didn't receive gifts, he gave gifts. Because Paul's Jesus isn't a Jesus that on his way to heaven robs you of everything you are. You come into his house and he takes everything from you. His Jesus is one that when you come into his house, he gives everything to you. One of the first signs that your gospel is less than good is the more that it asks of you instead of the more that it offers you. I didn't say there's nothing asked of you as a saint. You're asked to follow Jesus and lay down your life and pick up the cross and be part of that family. But the more that the gospel is demand, here's how much you owe me, here's how much of your time, here's how much of your life, here's how much of your effort, the less good news it is because it's... it's It's the God here. I'm I'm carefully saying this. but It's the only way I know to say it. It's this God without this Jesus. It's it's this prophecy without the ascendant one, Christ. So when Paul sees Christ ascending, he goes, before he leaves, he takes a piece of it, just illustratively, he reaches into that heart where blood and water flows. And he hands a piece of it to his church. He, he hands you a piece of his flesh. It's, it's communion. It's every time we take the body and the blood, it's, it's him going, take, eat. Not gimme, gimme. You guys are at church, what do you owe me? What will you give me so that I can get? No, it's take, eat, this is my body. We're supposed to be an open table so that when you come in, it isn't about what you can give to us, it's about what we can give to you. And what does that mean other than whatever he gave to Jesus, he gave to us. He led captivity captive and he gave gifts to him. I like that Paul even drops that whole rebellious bit. He just drops it. He just doesn't even quote it. He's like, I'm not not worried about... uh, The ascendant Jesus isn't worried about the rebellious. I let God deal with the rebellious. Paul decides not to. Did you you hear that? Let me me rephrase that. There's some stuff I'm not going to deal with. I'm going to let God deal with it. And you can tell me where you're supposed to deal with it. Well, tell it to Paul. Because sometimes I'm going to go, you know what? I don't know. I leave that to God. What I do know is that when he ascended, he gave himself. He didn't ask for you. He gave himself. Now, for Paul, that's ascendant grace. That's what we could have titled that segment. That's ascendant grace. That's a grace that goes up and on its way up. It showers blessings on the people. It's not God sucking the life out of us. It's God putting his life into us. For Paul, though, to get to that place, we have to have a descendant Christ. And and by descendant, we mean we have to have a Christ who also descends. That takes us back to this, but the next two verses. Notice the parentheses, that bracket verse 9 all the way through verse 10, which means parenthetical passage, which means explanation of the ascendant that just happened. Okay, parenthetical, let me try to explain why we're talking about an ascended Christ. Now this, he ascended, just talked about it. What does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He also descended, I'm sorry, he who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now, we're going to end right here. As you can imagine, it doesn't get much better than the descended Jesus who becomes the ascended Jesus fills the earth with all things. It, it's, it's, it's as good as you hope it is, in my opinion. It's better than you hope it could be that he fills all things. But on his way there, the one who ascended, Paul goes, what would that possibly mean but that he also first descended into the lower process? So for Paul's theology, how could he have ascended If he didn't first descend. Now, you could translate this. I've done this. You could translate this as you can't go up unless you had first come down. If you're God. If you're God and you came from heaven, then the only way to have to go up is if you first came down. So let me tell you that Jesus was the God that he claims he was. So he, God came down and then he ascended up. I don't see this that way anymore. And I'll tell you why. Two reasons. One because he didn't descend to the earth. He descended to the lower parts of the earth. So Paul's trying to take you past what you see into something you don't see because you haven't been to the lower parts of the earth. That's a Hebrew phrase for dead. Okay. So I no longer see Paul as going before he ascended. He had to come down here first, but The other reason I don't see it that way anymore is because Paul's trying to make sense of the ascension. And in Paul's theology, there's no way Jesus could go back to heaven if he didn't do it all. Whatever he needed to do. He can't disappear if there's anything left undone. Because if there's anything left undone, he's going to be able to fill all things. So Paul goes, what could it possibly mean that he could ascend if he had not first descended into the lower parts of the earth. Now, here's the bad news. Paul doesn't decide to elaborate on that sentence. Man, I wish he would have. I wish we could unearth, say, late 50s AD Pauline commentary on his own letter to the church at Ephesus. And he goes, let me explain this whole descended to the lower parts of the earth bit. This is an arguable text and has been ever since we started reading the book of Ephesians because we sat around and went, well, what does this mean? Let me start with what the early church looked at. The early church asserted that between Good Friday and the resurrection, and by early church, I'm talking first 300 years, okay? First 300 years past Christ. They taught that between Good Friday and resurrection, Jesus went down and emptied hell and they called it the harrowing of hell. The emptying out of hell. This was common Christian theology for the first several hundred years past Christ. Holy Week did not jump from Good Friday to Resurrection. It paused at Holy Saturday, and they preached the harrowing of hell. So where does Jesus go, they say, when He goes down into the grave? They go, well, His body stays in the grave, but He's not finished working. He goes and He harrows hell. The Apostles' Creed, which is birthed in the 4th century... It's probably birthed in the the 2nd century, but it's codified in the 4th century, which means that by the 4th century, century, we had essentially a rule of faith, which is a little difficult for us evangelicals to understand because we establish our own rules of faith in the evangelical church. And what I mean by that, and that's not a compliment, what I mean by that is we let each church determine whether you're saved or not. So if you go to that church, they'll tell you, here's what you got to do to get saved. And we'll go, amen, and we adhere to it. And then if we go down the street, that church goes, no, you got to do this, this, and this. We go, well, you guys are here, heretics. I mean, all of you are not even saved because you said you got to do this, but we said you got to do this. And we, we're so democratized individual liberty that we sort of promote. And if you're, if you're mad about people choosing their identities, man, you're way late to the anger party. You should have been mad a long time ago about Christianity choosing its identity because we just choose whatever we want to choose based on what building we were raised in. And so that's how you know you're saved is because you got baptized in running water. You didn't get baptized in still water. You get baptized in baptistry water. You got baptized in running water in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, not in the name of Jesus. Or you got baptized in the name of Jesus, but not the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost because there ain't no Trinity in the Bible. I mean, I'm, just, I'm giving you the kind of stuff I've heard about salvation. Said the sinner's prayer, didn't say the sinner's prayer. Sinner's prayer, that ain't the Bible. Nobody said that in a word. Got to confess with your mouth, Lord Jesus, believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Can't call on anything else until you're just swamped down with the process of salvation because of the democratized versions of Christian identity. Early church would have went, what is wrong with you? Just say the creed. It would have been like, I believe in God the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. And you, the whole Gospel message just sort of rolls out in that. In that creed, He was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. And on the third day, he rose again. Which is interesting, because by the late 4th century, the common rule of faith was, we believe in a Christ that was crucified, that was died and was buried... You should just, Bill, cut that line out. Because for most of us, that just seems like you're saying too much. I mean, you could jump straight from crucified, died, and buried on the third day, rose again, right? Why this line? He descended to the dead because for 300 years, this is how they had preached Christ. He died on a cross. He went to a cross. He died. They put him in a tomb, and he descended down into hell, and he cleaned it out. And on the third day when he was done, he rose again. And that went in the creed. I put hell in parentheses because there's still versions of the creed today that say he was crucified, he was died, he was buried, he descended into hell, and on the third day he rose again. Some people clean that up and say he descended to the dead because they either don't want to say hell or they know the implications of what it means to say it. Um, what it meant in my formative years was that, and this is what I heard, Jesus died on the cross. And then he went down into Abraham's bosom, the good side of hell, and he preached the gospel to Abraham's descendants, and everyone that said yes to him by faith, he took them with him to heaven, but he didn't take them yet. He took them out, and he sort of held them in spiritual limbo. And then he raised from the dead, and when Mary Magdalene started to grab him, Jesus goes, don't touch me, I've not yet ascended to my father. Because here's how I was taught. Because if she had touched him, she would have tainted the work of the cross and destroyed what he did. And everyone being held in limbo would have fell right back down into Abraham's bosom and Jesus would have had to go to Calvary again. That was literally wow. how, I pre- how I was taught to preach and then preached all the way up to the resurrection. Wow. Wow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's right. Yeah, like <laughs> wh- where did... Um, then I ran into doctrines that said, no, he, he went down... And he burned in a devil's... This, he went down he burned in a devil's hell and he suffered as a sinner so that he could be resurrected so that he could taste what every sinner will have to taste that doesn't accept the cross and the resurrection. And they go, ooh, okay. Well, there we go. There's, a, there's another... And then the other side came back from that. This was my Pentecostal roots and went, no, we don't agree with that va- flavor of Pentecost. Jesus couldn't go to hell because he couldn't, he couldn't burn in hell. That would give the devil a temporary victory. So Jesus doesn't actually go down and burn. Jesus goes down and empties out Abraham's bosom. Once again, we're right back to the empty in Abraham's bosom. And I was always stunned that anybody in Abraham's bosom would have said no. Like Jesus shows up and goes, hey, I'm here. But that's how we preach. Everybody that wanted out could say yes and he'd resurrect them. He would bring them into heaven with him when he went home. Now, I know I'm sounding sarcastic and snarky. I know I am. And I really seriously am sorry. Because, I, I mean it. I, because I, I, I know that there are people that hold this stuff very true. And they are listening right now and their blood's boiling. Like they're fuming. Because they go, this is theology. I can point you to the verse. That anger is about 50 years old. Because up into the middle of about the 20th century, the church held to a pretty steady Christian theology that was solidified by the creed, which was he was crucified, he was died, he was buried, he descended to the dead, and then he rose again. Now, they didn't fight about what happened when he descended to the dead, but they never fought about the fact that he went down there. He went down there and he harrowed hell. He cleaned out hell by his finished work. And only when he had sufficiently cleaned out hell has he come forth from the grave. In the last half century, we started shooting off into directions. As we became a liberated church in that two or three gathering his name, he's in the midst, we could start a church. We started coming up with these streams and, and really fighting for them. So I'm not, I'm not intentionally trying to be cantankerous about them. Um, I got my own stuff. Here's a couple of the reasons why we have those verses, all right? I'm not even going to do much with this. I'm just going to throw it out there. you think Paul's confusing in Ephesians 4? Wait till you read Peter. First Peter chapter 3. 18, 19, 20. Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. By whom also He went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few that is eight souls were saved through water. You can just say right there for a second. I'm not even gonna try. What I'm gonna tell you is that I'm, what I'm gonna tell you is that the church scholars from, from the time we discovered Peter's letter went, What? <laughs> and so what we've done with it is we've said, well, the only thing we know to do with it is maybe it fits into that moment that we've been talking about in which Jesus harrows hell. So whatever he did. Peter believed he went down into a place where people were disobedient and he preached to those spirits who were there. So whether you can explain this or not, what you can't deny is that as early as 1 Peter, the church believed that Jesus went down somewhere between the cross and the resurrection and he shared good news. Whatever all of the rest of that means, you can't deny that they were trying to at least convey that. And if you do, then Peter doubles down because that's chapter 3 and this is chapter 4, verse 6. For this reason, the gospel was preached to those who were dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. The gospel was preached to dead people. And Peter's already introduced you to the moment where Jesus bore sins in his body, and then he goes down and he preaches to the spirits in prison. So now doubling down goes, when he went down there, Jesus preached the gospel to the dead. Okay, let me try to land this by this admission. Many people disagree with this theology. All I told you tonight is I'm going to give you some stuff to think about. All right? Many people disagree with this theology. Why? Because it's not mentioned in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John put Jesus on the cross. They put Him in a grave, and they shut their mouths. They don't even dare to try to explain what happens after Jesus goes in the grave, and then they bring Him out of the grave. Some Protestant writers, now we're talking mid-15th century, okay? Protestant Reformation split off from the Catholic Church. Protestantism then starts to filter out throughout the world. Most of our denominations are underneath some form of umbrella of Protestantism. It's actually kind of pretentious when I say things like, There's, we got, you know, we got 43,000 denominations. we got 43,000 denominations essentially in Protestantism. That's just one little bitty slice of the church. The rest of the church world goes, uh, hold my beer, you know. <laughs> <laughs> We're here. <laughs> some Protestant writers s- say... That his descent into hell was the humiliation he endured. And they would preach it as a sort of we put Jesus through hell kind of thing. And so they would say when Jesus descends to hell, the harrowing of hell is basically the hell of the cross, in other words. So they tried to take the, uh, make it an allegory of what Jesus suffered when he went to Calvary. Let's just don't dismiss it. Here's all I ask. Just don't dismiss it. That's so pretentious to go. That's a stupid doctrine that's been around for 700 years. That if 1 Peter was written in the first century has been around did I say 700? 1,700 years? If 1 Peter's written in the first century, it's been around for 2,000 years. Because at least in 1 Peter 3 and 1 Peter 4, somebody that's dead's getting the gospel preached to him. Whatever you want to do with that. At least in Ephesians 4, he who ascended first descended in the lower parts of the earth so that he could ascend. Because he can't go up unless he goes all the way down. It's kind of what Paul's saying. He can't really go up unless he's went all the way down and done whatever there is to do there. So... Don't dismiss it. Centuries of Christian tradition have at least believed. At least believed. And I think we could maybe even get most of us in the church today to amen this statement. They could at least agree Christ defeated hell. I think most would at least agree. They might be scared to amen it for fear of what you, you mean by Christ defeated hell. Okay, maybe so but let's not dismiss it. What can we do with it? Okay, well, if we don't dismiss it, then we need to see if there's other scriptures that might support the idea. So, so, so let me just share some with you that you all believe. We all believe. But if you had the harrowing of hell as part of your theology, how would you read these verses? Revelation chapter 1, verse 17 and 18. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I was dead, but he laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives. I am he who was dead. But behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of hell and death. I hold them. I was alive. I was dead. I am alive. There's, I was Jesus. I was crucified. I'm alive. By the way, I have the keys of the space in between. The death and the resurrection. I'm the first, I'm the last. I'm the one who's alive. I was dead, I am alive. I was dead Friday. I am alive Sunday. And I have the keys of hell and death. How would you read that if you had a gospel that preached the harrowing of hell? That's a no-brainer. That's like, a, that's like your bumper sticker verse. Where'd you get the keys of death and hell if not death and hell? Okay. Just, just, just a thought. I mean, otherwise, Jesus has just... Made a prophecy. Because that's kind of how some of us handled that. Jesus made a prophecy. that He gets to determine who goes to hell. He gets to determine who dies. And in that theology, someone loses their child, and you call them up and go, God needed another angel in his choir. And you need rebuked for that foolishness. Because if you've got God holding the keys of death, meaning God determines who dies, then everyone that dies was brought in because God said it was time. And you got way more problems than arguing with people over the harrowing of hell. <laughs> you just pinned yourself into a corner and you, don't, and you think you brought God in there with you. And I think it's in those moments where God steps out of your corner and goes, you can fight this one by yourself. Because I, I I'm not giving you verses for this. That I'm down here slaughtering the innocents so that you can justify something that happens in a wicked world. And there's darkness and there's death and there's pain. And it's terrible. And don't blame God. To me, that's good news. Don't blame God. Really good news is if it happened to you, it was happening to him. You want to know what it means for him to step into hell? It means he steps into yours. When You go through molestation. You go through rape. You go through murder. You go through hell, pain. He steps in. You go through it? He goes, I go through it. Because... When I go in, I go into the keys of hell and death. And then you, what would you do with this? If you believed in the harrowing of hell, might you see this? He's got keys. What's he do with them? Matthew 16, 18, I say to you, Peter, on this rock, I'll build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Old King James says the gates of hell shall not prevail against them. That's a whole other message as to why we've changed Hades to hell and Gehenna to hell. I'm going to leave that alone. I don't, even have the, I don't even have the fire right now to try to cover those two sides of that line. I'm going to let you deal with that on your own. But what I can say is we've spent more time trying to figure out if this is the Pope and the Catholic Church than we have the obvious theology of this verse. Is Peter the first Pope? Is, is, is this the church that's going to storm hell? And what we should have been looking at is the gates of hell cannot stop what has Christ in it. How can the gates not stop it? Because Revelation 1, 17, 18 says, I was alive, then I was dead, now I'm alive, and I got the keys to death and hell. Gates can't stop the one who holds the keys. So you can put those two things together. Christ goes in His death to take care of whatever is in that place of hell. Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish... So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This is one sometimes we forget about. Jesus is saying, Look, same way Jonah goes down into the whale's belly that goes to the bottom of the ocean, the deepest part you can go to. You can't get any lower than death. And just in case you thought you could, I'll put him in a whale and take him so far down into the ocean it's the deepest part of death. So Jesus, just as Jonah goes down into the whale, so will the Son of Man go down to the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. We're talking spiritual. Obviously, his body's in the tomb, but where is he? You see, I very much believe in the realm of spiritual. I very much believe in that which you cannot see. In fact, I don't think you can believe in the resurrection and not believe in the realm of spiritual. Um, I struggle with people that, that try to make all of this just allegorical. Like the whole Christian experience is just an allegory for life. There's a lot of allegory in the Bible, but there's an unseen realm. This struck me really hard this week. I was doing a podcast and Mark and Jesus is talking to the Syrophoenician woman. Her daughter's at home, grievously vexed with the devil. Jesus goes, woman, great is your faith. Your daughter's been cleansed of the devil. And he just goes about his business. He doesn't go to her house to cast the devil out. He doesn't lay hands on the girl to cast the devil out. He doesn't throw a big seance or a fit. He never even says, I rebuke the demon that's in this daughter. And I can, he just says, woman, go home. The devil's gone. Whatever's going on in the realm of the spirit Jesus takes care of it. From the realm of the flesh. It, it, either you believe all of that stuff actually exists in the Spirit, or you got to ch- chunk out a big portion of your Gospels. Like, Jesus is just a crazy man. Like, literally. If you don't believe in the Spirit realm, Jesus is a crazy man. He goes, woman, well, go home. Your daughter's not got a devil anymore. It's like He just turns and elbows His disciples. Like, that crazy woman thought her daughter was demon-possessed. Ha, ha, ha. I don't buy that. But something happens in the realm of the Spirit. That realm of the unseen and so Jesus goes three days and three hearts on the eye of the Earth. It's not a literal spot in the middle of the Earth. It can't be his body's in the tomb, but it's something happening in the spirit for three days and three nights, because in their mentality, when you go into the Earth, you've died. That's what happens when you go into the Earth. So Jesus goes, "I'll tell you, I'm really going to die. And I'm going to go into the heart of the Earth, Mark chapter three, verse 24. Here's one more. If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. All I'm asking you to do is read these verses as if you believed harrowing of hell was a possibility and then see how much different they sound. If the kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom can't stand. If a house is divided against itself, the house can't stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but has an end. Ooh. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he plunders his house. And if in the resurrection, Jesus is the ultimate plunderer of evil and sin, he has to bind the strong man, whatever that looks like. And so just maybe when he harrows hell, he does everything we've preached he was doing when he dies on the cross and comes out of the grave. And Maybe that's what our early church fathers looked at as the harrowing of hell. Luther was a big proponent of Jesus going into hell. And someone pressed Martin Luther as to whether he believed that Christ went into hell in victory or he went down there to burn in humiliation. And Luther would only say this, it is enough to preach the article to the lay people as they've learned to know it in the past from the stained glass and other sources. I read that like five times as I was putting it in thinking, I needed to read it over and over again to really get the import of what Luther's saying. He wouldn't land on what he thought Jesus was doing. But I don't think it's because he doesn't know or doesn't have an idea or he's a coward. I think he was saying, it's 1,500 years since Christ. If you'd go into church and look up at the stained glass window, you'd have your answer to this question. We've been on this. I think this is what Luther's saying. We've been on this for 1,500 years. It's already there. Just let your stained glass windows take care. Okay, we don't have any stained glass windows. Maybe it's one of the failures of our modern church is that we don't believe in iconography or art because, you know, that looks too satanic. I don't know. Um, I know we don't have incense because, you know, they use that in, like, massage parlors. (laughs) It would be a terrible thing to smell when you come into the house of God. Um, So I brought you some iconography. All right, I put this up last weekend in our video, but I wanted to bring it to you tonight. This is fourth century Byzantine artwork from the Eastern Orthodox Church. The name of this is the Anastasis in Greek. Anastasis is the Greek word for the resurrection. It's, a pa- it's actually a tensed word in the way that it's here. It's the risen, okay? But it's not the title the Eastern Orthodox Church titled this Christ Harrow's Hell. And this hung in their churches and on their mosaics and on their tapestries and on their windows for years. So much so that Martin Luther gets asked, what do you think Jesus did? And he went, just look at the art. We've been preaching it for, you know, a lot of centuries. And if you look at the art, Jesus comes bursting out of the tomb, standing on two gates that are in the form of a cross. Beneath it, Something is hogtied. Death, hell, Satan. And he's pulling out of the grave Adam and Eve, but not by the hand, but rather by the wrist, whether they like it or not. Because that's what harrowing is. It is not Jesus goes in and invites you out. It's Jesus comes in and drags you out. And they might have got this idea from John 12, where John says, Jesus says, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. And the Greek word is, if I be lifted up, I will drag all unto me. And so maybe he who descended went down to absolutely clean out death. And maybe not. But if you're maybe not, you're on a little island by yourself. That's all I'll say about that. Maybe you're right. Doesn't mean you're wrong if you're on a little island all by yourself. But for a long time, the church has proclaimed a Jesus who didn't just die on the cross, but went down into hell and won a victory. You you go, why is this such a big deal to you? It's a good question, and I've been asking myself that. Why has this impacted me so much? Because this has really impacted me. I keep this in my my library, so I look at this every morning when I pray and when I read my scriptures. And part of the reason that I'm doing that is because I want to be reminded that Jesus wins. That if I bring some hell into the day today, or I step into hell today, he knows how to reach down, grab my wrist. I'm not even always smart enough to grab him by the hand, but he knows how to grab my wrist. Pull me out of whatever death I'm in. Hogtie whatever it is that thinks it owns me and stand on the gates of hell, which are conveniently the gates of hell are slipping themselves into the form of the cross (laughs) because hell cannot hold back what Calvary has accomplished. Why is it important to me? I think because of that, because I know that I need pulled out. It's also important to me because it means that the cross is not simply Jesus dying for my sins. It's the cross in which Jesus dies so much as my sin that there's nothing left. He just cleans it out. Gives me a victorious cross. Now what you do with that cross is between you and God. It's truly between you and God. What you do with that cross and that resurrection, it's up to you. You don't have to do anything with it. The great argument is, what if you do nothing with it? Did he harrow hell? Well, the church for centuries preached that. Even if you do nothing with it, he harrowed hell anyway. You can choose to do with that as you will. You can choose to say yes to that, or you can choose to say no to that. And I know what we want right there is to find out, well, what happens if you say no to it? You know. I think if you say no to it, you can go ahead and live your hellish life all you want to. Because the love of God is going to keep chasing you down, and I hope it catches you. And if you want to, you can say yes to that love at any time, and you can embrace him fully, because that's what Paul believed at the end of that parenthetic passage that God wanted to do. So let's close there at Ephesians 4.10. He who descended is the one who ascended, because if he descended first, then he could finally ascend. And if he did, well, then he could fill all things with whatever it was he descended to do and whatever it was he ascended to do. So whatever it is you think he did, you can be filled with that. So if you don't think he did all that stuff, then don't fill your heart and your head with it. It's up to you. Don't, don't worry about that he descended. Just skip this part. When you go back through Ephesians later and you're studying this, just go, I'm going to skip that night. We talked about he descended, but you miss a valuable chance. Paul thought to be filled with all things. He opens with the measure of the gift of grace that was given to Christ could be yours. And the one that gives it to you ascended first, gave you gifts, didn't ask anything from you. By the way, before he ascended, he descended so he could take care of whatever it was that was holding you bondage. So that by descending, he could ascend and on his way out, fill you up with all things. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are filling us with all things. I'll take it. I'll take whatever it is you will fill us up with because I trust the descended, ascended Jesus. I trust Him. I trust that if He holds the keys of death and hell, then there's nothing that it can hold on me. I trust Him that He went into the heart of the earth to take care of whatever it is that's trying to drag me into that darkness. And I receive that because I get the measure of grace given to Christ. You don't ask anything of me on your way up, but instead on your way up, you give to me all things. Well, I'll take it. And I thank you for it in Jesus name.